0: for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, April 20th, 2018. Bit of a note here. Light episode today. Monday off. Need to take a little bit of time to recoup. Pace has been catching up. Taking a little time off, getting a little R and R. But we we'll still have a good episode today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No Shortage of really bizarre things being said out there, we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast oh, what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostlets and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by evangelicals is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There are people who are literally making stuff up, twisting God's Word, making it void, teaching for shameful gain, things they ought not to teach, and uh, we are doing our best to sound the alarm, get the Word out there, but not just warn about them, but also show you how to rightly understand God's Word and how to properly wield the sword of the Spirit in order to protect yourself and others. All right, so like I said at the beginning of the program, I'm kind of like worn down to the nubbins, and so I made an executive decision you know, we, we've been – the the production schedule has been off the chain, the best way I can put it. So uh, I'm going to – we're going to have a light episode today. I'm taking Monday off to kind of recharge the batteries a little bit. I'll probably be on social media and we'll still be doing some work. But, you know, it's not going to be a production day in that sense for me. And uh, we will be back on Tuesday. A little bit of a note. Tuesday at 5 Central. Tuesday at 5 Central, we will be having a, a YouTube live stream and uh, we will be announcing the winner of the 2018 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I will, I will keep the uh, voting open until then. And so uh, the idea is if you want to get your vote in, please go ahead and do. We're noticing that uh, this year uh, there is uh, somebody who's kind of a runaway favorite at the moment. <laughs> it's not quite, It's literally not like any year I've ever watched these things play out. And then again, I've, I don't think I've ever really picked the winner yet. So... <laughs> so i'm kind of pulling for my horse here, but uh anyway so uh and if you miss the live stream, no worries we will post it over at fightingforthefaith.com dot com uh once uh once the video is you know uploaded to youtube and 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 all the kind of stuff and we catch up with the podcast so you will find it um you will find it posted right before you know i, I guess because it, it works in kind of reverse order. Um, right before the episode for Tuesday, uh, but, uh, it'll, y- y- you get the idea. <laughs> I'm confusing myself. Let's, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of fighting for the faith. You ever just reach into your brain and start scrambling it up and realizing I'm just making everything worse anyway. So uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to head over to the 2018 shepherds conference and we're going to listen to a lecture delivered by Albert Moeller on the text where Jesus, uh, where Peter confesses Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and uh, Jesus says, so You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, he does, does a whiz-bang job. Well, well, I don't think that it has a name for the lecture. I think the lecture was purposely themed for the theme of the 2018 shepherds conference uh, I will build my church so that's what we'll name the the episode I don't know if that's the official title for the lecture or not a little bit of a note here and that is is that uh, Albert Muller is a reformed baptist I am a confessional lutheran that's a conservative lutheran not like the liberal kinds out there and uh, and uh, Albert Muller being a reformed baptist we will have um, we do have currently a difference of uh, of understanding of what the Office of the Keys is. I say that just because uh, I don't want people to think that uh, I'm endorsing his view. I will say this, though, about when you get to it, it probably won't be until the second half of the uh, of this hour. But when you get to it, he's absolutely right about the grammar. Albert Moeller nails the grammar that uh, the, the Office of the Keys, uh, the sins you forgive will have already been forgiven is how the Office of the Keys works grammatically in the Greek. And so, you know, I'll say that. I, and, and so I, I think I can say pretty much amen to what he said. However, he doesn't quite go far enough in his explanation of the Office of the Keys. So I say that as just a you know, as a caveat, so that uh, someone says, so, you Rose, bro, you know, you, you, you claim to be an, a confessional Lutheran, and Albert Muller said something that isn't the same, and you didn't say anything. So I said something, so you, you get the idea. All right, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. Here's Albert Muller, and uh, we're going to title this lecture, I Will Build My Church. Here we go.
1: So I want to invite you to turn to Luke. Excuse me. You can turn to Luke if you want, but we should turn to Matthew chapter 16. it's all good, all inerrant and all infallible, all verbally inspired, but tonight we're directing attention to Matthew 16. We have a lot of fun together. We can have fun that other people don't even understand. And and we can have fun together because of our commonality in the faith and, and in friendship and in the gospel, in Christ, and in the high calling of preaching, had a good time on the panel today with my colleagues, not only John, but Mark and Lig. We have a good time together. It's based in decades of friendship, common conviction. We don't go to the same church. You may have noticed that. Presbyterians think they start earlier than Baptists. It's not true, however, because the Southern Baptist Convention will outdo the Presbyterians in this sense. We enroll fetuses. As, a, as an unborn child, I was enrolled in Sunday school in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have cradle roll. That's old and historic. I have a certificate in my office in which I was enrolled in cradle roll October 19, 1959, which just happens to be the date of my birth. I knew about that. I, uh, I, I knew about that. I, I knew about cradle roll. Uh, we're, we're, this is not joining the church. This is merely being enrolled in Sunday school, which in this Southern Baptist convention means we got you. But I understood all of that. What I didn't understand was what I found attached to my cradle roll certificate, which was pre-cradle roll. Now, do the math. So this was back in a day long before ultrasound or anything else when they didn't have an idea. The baby was a boy or a girl. They just knew there was a baby coming, and I was enrolled as baby molar. (laughs) Prenatally. And as soon as I was in swaddling clothes, I was laid in the nursery. That's the way it works. And at least it did for me. I've never known a moment when the church was not a part of my life. I've never known a moment when I was not taken, brought. I've never known, and I'm glad to say this, as a child, I have no memory of anything other than the most positive, gospel, warm, scriptural memories I think of the uh, the little old ladies, and, and, and I I know that may not be the best way to put it. These days you can't say that. I'll just say chronologically advantaged females. They were, they were they were taking care of me in the nursery, and uh, and and I, I can remember this, and the rocking chairs, and the and all of that, and I, I can remember all the the preschool, and not all of them. That's an exaggeration. I remember some of them. I remember vacation Bible school, and when I was a, when I was a boy. Growing up in a, in a southern town, we didn't go to vacation Bible school. We went to every vacation Bible school. <laughs> and it was because our parents were certainly intent upon us getting a biblical education, but it also gave us something to do. But uh, all of that, I, c- I can remember the, the chronologically advantaged men who served as ushers. And, uh, and they would welcome us into the church. I can remember the church custodian. His name was John Costine. He was a, he was a sweet man. It was a fairly large church, very traditional, tall steeple, very traditional, very Baptist church. And I can remember being in about the fourth grade. We had an elevator in our church, and the, the fourth grade Sunday school was on the fourth floor. I can still remember Mr. Costine was in there every Sunday pushing the buttons. I asked him one day, I said, Mr. Costine, why do you stand in here and push the buttons for the elevator? He looked at me without skipping a beat and said, so you don't. Okay, i got it. i got it. I've got it. I understand. That's the way this works. (laughs) I I was a royal ambassador, which in the Southern Baptist Convention, that that was the group for boys, school-age boys. It was roughly analogous to the Boy Scouts. I wanted to be a Boy Scout. My parents told me I could be a Boy Scout so long as I was a Boy Scout less fervently than I was a royal ambassador. So I had to actually advance in the Royal Ambassadors prior to my advancement in the Boy Scouts, which really was fairly ridiculous, since the Church also sponsored the Boy Scout troop. And uh, we was just the same boys with the same leaders wearing different uniforms on different nights. It was we, we were even in the same room. I uh, I had the full body Church experience. It was just all there and all all such a fact of life, I could not imagine life without Christ's church. I couldn't imagine life without the people who loved me and nurtured me and and taught me, lived Christ before me. And then, when as a boy I was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I understood this was entirely different. I was now not going to church. I was... of the church by God's grace. But thankfully, I already knew so much and had had such warm, nurturing experiences and had already been welcomed by Christ's people for all those years. I've never known a moment when the church wasn't obvious to me. I've never known an instant in my life when the church had to be justified or explained Simply a fact. We look together at Matthew chapter 16. Look with me as in chapter 16, we begin in verse 13. We read Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I dare say that this text comes as unfamiliar to virtually none of you. I trust that almost all of you could almost recite that passage by heart. Certainly the crucial points. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some of you may also know that evangelicals have an awkward relationship with this text. Many evangelical Protestants don't know what to do with this text and seem to be even somewhat afraid of it. And we can understand why, but before we turn to that particular issue, let's look at verse 13, which reminds us that all this took place when Jesus and his disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. The important thing to understand there is that Jesus had taken his disciples to a place where they were least likely to be recognized and most likely to be able to have a private conversation. There's a bit of distance here, far outside of Galilee, even further away from Judea. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is after all named for Caesar, there's a very small Jewish population and... Jesus and his disciples could have the kind of conversation and spend the time together they could not in the press of Galilee. But we're told that when Jesus had done this, when he and his disciples had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples two questions. The first is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Out of the blue. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, I want to know. Who are they saying that I am? This had to be awkward. I feel tension in the text. We have to recognize, once again, that we often think that if we were only the disciples and we were only with Jesus, we would know so much more. But the reality is, with the gift of God's inerrant and infallible word... We have all four Gospels before us, and as we walk in the sequence of the ministry of Jesus and his life, we actually know far more than the disciples knew. That becomes very clear in this very passage. Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say that I am? Now, this is a, a question with a little bit of distance. It's a bit of an abstraction. It's not nearly so intense as the question that you already know will follow. But it's a question that required the disciples to speak amongst themselves and to articulate in front of Jesus the speculation about who Jesus was. Is who do people say that the son of man is? And look at verse 14. And they said, some say, you got to love that. Some say, since you ask, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, Or one of the prophets. What's going on here? Well, for one thing, it demonstrates something of the difference between our time and this time in the speed of communication, and the clarity of communication. John has been in the region of Judea. He has been in the wilderness. And then he has come proclaiming, even as he is making way for the Lord, and, and John the Baptist calling for repentance, and John the Baptist performing baptism. There were persons who had heard about John the Baptist, and they observed Jesus, they listened to Jesus, and, and they heard also Jesus speak of repentance. It was very easy to understand in this context how persons who heard something about John the Baptist and observed something of Jesus could, could assume perhaps this is John the Baptist come to Galilee. The the next answers are a little bit more difficult for us. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or just one of the prophets. And you look at this and you go, how, how, "How does that make sense? Since when did the Jews believe in reincarnation?" The answer is they did not. No, what you have here is the understanding that is explicit in the Old Testament that there is a prophetic a prophetic calling, a prophetic mantle that will be picked up by successive prophets who will come and continue the message and continue the prophetic office. After Elijah comes Elisha. Moses himself said that there would be another who would take up his prophetic mantle. And Jesus, in his message, in his preaching, he does sound at times like Elijah in judgment. He does sound at times like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, of course, the prophets, they resound in what Jesus is preaching, even in the previous verses and chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. We can hear the prophets. We can hear Elijah. We can hear Jeremiah. And, of course, Elijah also makes reference to the fact that there was a tremendous amount of expectation, again, based in scriptural evidence, that the coming of the Messiah would be preceded by the preaching of Elijah. Elijah. We can understand the confusion, but it is confusion. We can understand the multiple answers, but it just, it just points to the necessity of clarifying who Jesus is. And again, we tend to think that if we had been there at this time, we would have known the answer, the right answer. But the reality is we wouldn't. And the reality is we couldn't. Except for one glorious reality. Flesh and blood does not reveal his identity, but our Father who is in heaven. But we rush ahead. Before we get there, there's that second question. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of places I am glad I was not. I embarrass very easily. I, uh, I, I can withstand many things, but embarrassment is not one of them. And, and, and I'll, I'll just say that not knowing how to answer a question is very embarrassing to me. And the more personal the context, the more embarrassing the moment It's one thing for Jesus to ask his disciples, who do they say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? It's one thing to offer the speculation that's been heard. It's it's one thing to look at the Who is Jesus cover story in Time magazine. It's another thing for Jesus to ask, but who do you say that I am? Don't rush past it. Just, just, Just feel it for a moment. But, 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 who do you, all 12 of you, who do you say that I am? Someone's going to have to answer. Simon Peter answered. He replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did you hear that? First of all, Simon Peter, a name that in this context will only make sense as the passage unfolds, answers the question. We already know that Simon, who we will know better, is Peter. Here is Simon Peter. We already know that he is among the most active of the disciples. We know amongst the twelve, he's already demonstrated some leadership. We know that amongst the twelve, he is already amongst the most vocal. We also know and will know in the totality of the Gospels put together that amongst the twelve, he's one of the most impetuous. Amongst the twelve, he is one of the most, if not the most impulsive, I don't know what combination of those attributes came together in this moment, but I do know it's not mostly about Simon Peter. His answer is extremely short. It's it's economic in its words. It gets right to the point. There's no speculation. Well, I've heard and we've been reasoning. Um, My systematic theology professor says... I learned in vacation Bible school. No, it's it, 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 you are Christos. You are the Christ. It's astounding. It, it's astounding because what Peter is saying is that Jesus of Nazareth is the king who will rule forever on David's throne. That he is in himself the chosen one, the anointed one, who will bring total fulfillment to Israel, who will complete the covenantal promises. It's an audacious statement. If If we think of it with too much familiarity, we will miss the incredible risk that is in this moment. Misidentifying the Messiah is not just a massive theological mistake. It would be blasphemy. It would be slander against God to misidentify the Messiah or to attribute messianic identity clearly to one who is not the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't look like the Messiah. I don't mean in his physical appearance, although there's a, there are indications, even as Isaiah tells us, that he was not striking and attractive in his appearance. No, what I mean is the Jewish expectation, based partly in Scripture and based partly in conjecture, was that the Messiah would be recognizable as the Messiah, and that not only would the Jewish people know he's the Messiah, but Rome, the oppressor, would know he's the Messiah and that the coming of the Messiah would be with a political reestablishment and a vindication of Israel as a nation, and that does not appear to be what is happening right now. In fact, they're not in Jerusalem, they're not in Judea, they're not even in Galilee, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's not at all obvious... That the Messiah, David's son, would be in the area named for Caesar, sparse of Jewish population, where (laughs) most decent Jewish people wouldn't dare to go, Jesus takes his disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the the consolation of Israel, the promised one, the fulfillment of all that God has promised and his covenant promises to Israel. You are he. You are the one who will reign on David's throne as a greater than King David, and you will reign eternally, obviously. But he goes on. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, when you look at a text like this, and you look at it in the year 2018, we need to ask some specific questions. One of them is, what in the world does a theological liberal do with this? Because they've got to do something with this. And I can just tell you the summary is, they don't like it one bit. Uh, They they don't like it, and they particularly don't like our English translations, which, according to liberals, have the great fault of actually translating the text. So here's the thing beginning in the 18th century, but particularly in the 19th century with the the rise of theological liberalism in its full bloom, the the, the essence of theological liberalism was to try to rescue a spiritually significant Jesus from the, the biblical Jesus. Because the biblical Jesus is just persistently and obnoxiously supernatural, which is very awkward for people who don't believe in the supernatural. So they've got to cut Jesus down to size. And this is the whole distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of Nazareth. And so they'll look at this and they'll say, well, 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 here's what must be going on. First they will argue this must be retrospective. This must be the the post-resurrection church church reading back onto this this moment, the claim that somehow the, the, the disciples in general, and Peter in specific, had made this kind of confession of Christ. And then they'll try to look at the words, and they'll say, well, well, let's look at this carefully, because it's one thing for him to say, you are the Christ. Some of the theological liberals said that the Jewish expectation was for Christ's in the plural, rather than for a singular. So that, that, that may not be as significant. Don't, don't worry. There's nothing obnoxiously supernatural here. It, it's not what it looks. Maybe we can cut this down to size and make Jesus safe. No, instead, this must be that he was one of the Christ, and, and about this being the Son of the living God, that must just be that he is a teacher of particular divine favor. Well, if you're a theological liberal, that's what you do with the text, but that's basically what you do with every text. It's just that this text is a particularly nettlesome text if you want an unsupernatural Jesus. But here, Peter confesses in this, this great text known as the Petrine Confession. He confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you put it all together in the flow of Matthew. You put Matthew in the context of the Synoptic Gospels. You put the Synoptic Gospels in the context of the New Testament and you look at the faith of the church. What you have here is the earliest confession of Jesus as both Messiah and the divine Son of God. Right here, in, in just an economy of a few words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You will notice no other modifiers, no other equivocation, there is no verbal chatter, there is only you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There it is. But what's Jesus going to say? Again, put, put yourself in the context of recognizing the risk of, of what Peter has just said. Simon, as he was at this moment, Simon speaking, has now committed two acts of blasphemy if he isn't right. He has slandered God the Father, and he has slandered the actual Messiah if he's wrong. Understand also that this verse is one of the greatest verses of clear distinction between Christianity and Islam. There at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, many of you may have visited it, you know of the claims made of Allah. The first is that there is only one God, Allah, and he has no son. Well, there's the distinction. Here, Peter says, you are... The Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice how Jesus responds. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I was assigned to speak of the courage and conviction of the church. Where does it come from? Well, we see the courage and conviction of the church demonstrated in Peter's answer. This is the conviction and courage of the church. This is what it looks like, and this is also where it comes from. It is because what Peter said is true. We are saved only because what Peter said is true. Salvation is possible and it's accomplished only because what Peter said is true. You and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can close our eyes at night tonight only because what Peter confessed is true. And you and I and all of those who have ever believed in Christ and will ever believe in Christ can close our eyes in death only because what Peter confessed is true. Every word of it true.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pyrochristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture by Albert Moeller, I Will Build My Church. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
1: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of What The Buzz, where we show you the latest, the greatest, the most fantastic, and controversial inventions in the Christian world of tomorrow, today. In studio with me right now is the infamous Dr. Ergen Kanner with his latest product called Ergen Canner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Dr. Canner, please tell us how you invented this marvelous product. It all started when I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My conversion to Christianity was a relatively mundane one. Being a run of the mill Christian is not what we call exciting. I bet when I would try to tell my pagan friends why they too should be Christians, all they did was laugh at me and tell me how pathetic my Christian testimony was. I knew then that if my story of how I chose Jesus was more compelling, then I would be able to reach more people. It wasn't until years later that I'd, I created the spray that you see before you now. Well, what does it do? It does exactly what I said it does. For example, after using the spray, I was able to completely change my Christian testimony. I went from being a boring middle-aged man to an individual who grew up under the oppression of Islam. I was part of the Islamic Youth Jihad, and I had been personally trained by terrorists of Al-Qaeda. When I moved to America in my 15th year, I was plagued by ridicule and bullying in my high school. People would call me Sand Monkey and push me around like a rag doll. I wished to crush the infidels when they stood. Luckily for me, I found Jesus and accepted him into my heart before I committed acts of terrorism. Instead of a bomb on my back, I now had the cross of Jesus. That's an amazing story! Has your spray worked with other people? Yes, yes it has. Take a listen to some unenhanced testimonies from these non-actors about my product.
3: Before I used Ergen Kanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray, I was a boring accountant working for a small firm in the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Me, being a Christian, was about as compelling as watching paint dry. Then I became a pirate from the 17th century who personally helped sack the Spanish main. I pillaged and plundered the heart and soul out of the Caribbean for many a year. Then one day... I miraculously accepted Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. I put up me cutlass forever and sailed to America with the hope of telling more people that Jesus died so that they might live in luxury.
1: I was a simple stay-at-home dad who didn't have any real ambitions in life other than taking care of my children. I'd always go to my local church and experience the presence of God. My friends who did fantasy football with me never really found my Christian walk to be that compelling. So now, I'm an ex-assassin who carries out hundreds of missions for the government around the world. There isn't anybody on earth that I couldn't kill with a pair of chopsticks and a stick of bubblegum. During one of my last missions, I came across the family who had told me the good news, that I had the power to forgive myself of all the debts I had wrought. In that moment, I felt a change come over me, as I led Jesus into my heart, and I gave up my life of murder forever.
3: I used to be normal and happy. Then, one day, my church counselor, Mr. Gary Sunshine, told me to go on an Emmaus walk to find Jesus. I guess I didn't trust in God hard enough because I was lost in the wilderness for over three months. Jesus never showed up, and Mr. Snuggles didn't make it. I had almost died from starvation, then a helicopter came, and...
2: What are you doing here? That's not the testimony! You do not even use spray. Get out!
3: Um, you promised me $5 for the testimony.
2: I'm not paying you for that garbage. Get out! Be sure to pick up your very own bottle of Ergoncanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray from Los Lobos Ministry Products.
3: Order now! Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! <laughs> and exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! And what exactly do we do with heretics?
2: Oh, we throw them in the boo box?
3: Ah! No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo-box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To are is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game refermanda and join the fight for the faith today.
0: Warning: uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you never hear sound biblical exegesis and a right handling of God's word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank. Is powder monkey at nine dollars ninety five cents a month after that gunner's made at twenty four ninety five a month from there master gunner forty nine ninety five a month and then quartermaster ninety nine ninety five a month joining our crew is a great way to support us and ensures that we continue to do what we 're doing. If you'd like to send a one-time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to support us via Patreon, you can become a patron by clicking on the become a patron button. And if you'd like to make your uh, to, uh, support us the old-fashioned way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support. We truly honestly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's uh, head back to the Shepherds Conference for 2018 as we listen to Albert Moeller and uh, his lecture that we've titled, I Will Build My Church. Here we go.
1: But notice exactly how Jesus responds. He, he, He responds with blessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Why? Before we go further, let's recognize this. According to the New Testament, Simon Peter, as we know him here, is the first human being to have the honor of confessing with his lips that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In that sense, he becomes the forerunner of every believer who will make this confession. His lips are the honored first lips. That's the blessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He is the first human being. He is the first son of Adam. He is the first of all the redeemed who has the honor of confessing what we confess every day of our lives, what we sing, even as we have sung, fairest Lord Jesus tonight. The the church makes its confession of Christ, the Son of the living God, but we do so standing behind those who have made that confession before. A church traceable back to apostles It's confession traceable back to one who had the opportunity, the honor, the privilege of first confessing you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The second thing we need to know is that Jesus clarifies very quickly that Peter, whose lips are so blessed, did not come up with this. Yeah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. But you have no idea where that came from. You did not know this until you said this. Have you ever had that experience, by the way? I've had that experience. There isn't a single preacher, if, if honest, who doesn't admit you have heard yourself say things that were profoundly true. You did not mean to say until you said them. And I'm honest. Just look at me here. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been preaching the text and you have heard yourself say things. You go, wow, that's true. <laughs> that's absolutely astounding. Somebody ought to preach that. I just did. I, I'm going to I'm gonna linger here a while. It's, it's the magnificent privilege of preaching the living and active word of God. If you do it long enough, stuff's going to come out of you that are not in your notes. And you didn't even conceive of it until you said it. And you said it and you went, wow, that's right. I am a preacher. This is is great. I should listen to myself more often. Uh, But we better hear Jesus immediately say but flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You were taught of the Father. This came from the Father. The whole If it's right, it's because the Holy Spirit makes it right. I love that. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yeah, you're absolutely right, but it's not about you. It didn't come from you. This is the revealed knowledge. This is where the church recognizes that everything we know about about the gospel, everything we know about Christ, everything we actually know about ourselves, everything we know about sin, everything we know about salvation, it's all by the gift of divine revelation. We haven't figured out any of this. And Paul in Romans 1, even as he affirms natural revelation, will make very clear that because of our sinfulness, none of us would figure this out. By the way, who knows the identity of Jesus before this in the Synoptic Gospels? Well, of course, the Trinity. But who on earth? Well, actually, a bunch of shepherds who appear just fleetingly in the Gospel of Luke who also received this truth by divine revelation, in that case, by a heavenly host, declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill amongst those whom God is pleased. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who else knows? Well, you've got got two people in the temple who know, at least in part, this is the consolation of Israel. But, but th- th- there's no real understanding yet of the deity, of the divinity of Christ, at least in what they say. Who knows who Jesus is? Interestingly, the demons know who he is. Yet Peter is the first human to confess that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, but he is not the first voice to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because actually there are demons who have already said, we know who you are, Jesus. Peter's the first human being, and it came to him by the gift of revelation. Folks, this is just deeply humbling. It's securing But it's deeply humbling to recognize that everything we know that is true, everything we know that leads to salvation, everything we know that's revealed in Scripture comes to us entirely by God's gift. We're not smart, we're blessed. And by the preaching of the Word of God, the congregations who hear us are not smart. But as they hear the Word of God, they are blessed. The text continues. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Slow down just a moment. Jesus says, and I tell you, Listen, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter? I mean, again, we're not shocked enough when we read this for multiple reasons. But most shocking of all is that this was Simon, the son of John, who is now Peter. You are Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter. Cephas, Aramaic. Rock. Petra. Rock. Rock. You rock. This is why evangelicals get nervous. We get nervous because there's an elderly man in Rome who thinks <laughs> he's Peter. That's what makes us nervous. And they look at this text. The Roman Catholic Church looks at this text and says, see, gotcha. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Okay, we've got a bit of an issue here. If indeed Francis is Peter, then it is our responsibility to be with Peter. Now, don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry, but do think. Evangelicals and, and Protestants sometimes will look at this and they'll say, well, he can't be talking about Peter. He can't be talking about Peter. He's got to be talking about himself. As in, he is the rock. He, or he's got to be speaking of the confession itself, the, the faith, the, the confessed faith of the church. That's the rock upon which he would establish his church. But, but there's no question that, that if we didn't have to think of Francis claiming that he's Peter, it would be natural for us to look at the text and see him speak to Peter and then wonder, what in the world does it mean that he speaks to Peter and says, you're the rock? You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is not one shred of evidence in Scripture for the papacy. Not one. As the reformers came to understand in their struggle to reform the church in the 16th century, the papacy could not be reformed. It had to be rejected. The papacy could not be transformed into an agency for the reformation of the church because it is itself, in its essential claims, the denial not only of scriptural revelation and of biblical authority in the church, but a denial of the gospel and the economy of salvation. There's not a shred of evidence about any office Peter has just assumed. There's not an office here. There's merely a confession. There's not a shred of evidence here about any succession to Peter. There's certainly not any shred of evidence whatsoever about Petrine infallibility. Just in case you're wondering. Notice how quickly, as you get to chapter 16, verse 23, the rock turns into Satan. In verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's astounding. How in the world do you get from, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, on and on and on. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. No, there's not a shred of an office. There's not a there's not a shred of a of a papal role here. There is certainly in Scripture the direct refutation of the fact that there is such an office, or there was to be such a succession, or there is such a hierarchy. And even more importantly, there is a a direct refutation in Scripture that there is any revelation that is attributable to Peter or the papacy. Jesus didn't say to Simon, yes, you got it exactly right, and I'm going to establish a throne, and I'm going to put you on it. And I'm going to say you've got the power of divine revelation, you and your colleagues, and what we're going to call the magisterium of the church. And through you, I'm going to speak, so we're going to have Scripture, but you're going to be the authoritative interpreter of Scripture. No, Peter, Peter is blessed because he just said what he was told to say by the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing every Christian is told to say. There's no special office here there's certainly no succession and and beyond that, we just have got to get over the evangelical allergy because as the reformers and particularly Luther came to understand, this text is for us. <laughs> this is the establishment of the church and and yes, Jesus is speaking to Peter and there's a reference to Peter and Peter is so illustrative that Peter has his name changed from Simon to Peter, but Peter's not the rock. Christ himself is the rock, the confession of the true church. On Christ and on that confession is the church established. But wait just a minute. I began by telling you that at no point in my life has the church never been anything but obvious. But it's not so in this passage. It's not so at all. It's clear the disciples weren't expecting anything about a church. It's also clear they don't get it. It's not only clear in this passage, because they move on so quickly as if the church doesn't exist, But even after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 1 tells us that when they are with Christ post-resurrection, they don't say, Jesus, where's your church? They say, is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom? They're still thinking in Jewish expectation, Messianic expectation, even after the resurrection of Christ. But notice how quickly, notice how quickly in the book of Acts the church appears. Not only does it appear, it appears as the central saving purpose of God. You want to see the kingdom? Where are you going to find the kingdom? In the church. There, there are hints in the Old Testament, just think of types of Christ, including the Ark. And there, 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 are, there are clues that Jesus has given already, even in the Gospel of Matthew, and certainly in the, in the other Gospels. But you, you have to get to the book of Acts, where it becomes increasingly clear, suddenly clear, clear at a very high velocity, that Christ died for His church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Notice the possessiveness there, by the way. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Is that not an issue of incredible encouragement and security to us? It is the theme of this conference. I will build my church. Notice there's no conditionality there. I shall, I might. I'm considering building my church. Notice what Jesus says unconditionally upon this rock. I will build my church. I will build my church. And then you look at a text like John chapter 17 where Jesus speaks not of the world but to the Father of those you have given me. And you, you start to put it together in a symphony of biblical theology and it becomes clear that we should have seen the church all along. And now we see the church. Christ has declared the church and we should, should see the church as central to, to God's purpose, his redemptive purpose. We should see the, the church as the embassy of heaven on earth. We should, we should understand as, as the disciples don't yet understand. That Jesus came to die for sinners. That he would build his church. Ecclesia, called out ones. If it's obvious to you, as it has been throughout my life obvious to me, it's only because by God's grace and mercy, the church has been visible to us. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And and notice the promise, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know enough to know. That's the gates of Hades. And you know enough to know that what's going on there is is that Jesus is saying what most Christians miss. He's not saying, upon this rock, I'll build my church, and you're never going to be troubled. Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and if you just understand a word faith theology, you can have everything you want. He doesn't say, upon this rock, I'll build my church and I promise you peace and prosperity, health and wealth, self-security, self-sufficiency, authenticity for the rest of your life. No, in in fact, he says, you're going to die. You know what happens to my church? You die. Unless you're alive when I come. And, and yet, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of Hades are the gates that separate life and death. Jesus is saying, guess who the church is? The church are the people who can die, and they're mine, so they live. He doesn't say the church is never going to experience trouble. He doesn't say the church is going to be immune from threats. In, in, in fact, the New Testament is incredibly honest about how fast those threats come. Just consider what happens to Peter the gates of hell shall not prevail, did not mean, Peter, you're going to live long and you're going to have an untroubled life. Jesus himself will tell Peter, they are going to take you against your will and they're going to take your life, but it's okay because you're mine. You're a part of my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. How many Christians have been martyred throughout the history of the Christian church? And not only that, how many congregations have apparently disappeared. Look at how many letters Paul wrote to Asia Minor. Try to find some of those churches now. Does that mean that that, that hell won? That when those Christians died, it was over? No, everyone who dies in Christ is safe. The gates of hell shall not prevail. That's the great promise given to the church. We're not promised peace and tranquility. We're actually promised trouble in this world. You will have trouble. But Jesus says, fear not for I have overcome the world. The text continues. Not only will the gates of hell not prevail, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now this is where evangelicals and Protestants get really nervous. And this is where Luther knew that he had a big problem. The accusation made even by von Staupitz, Luther's great mentor, was that in denying the moral and theological authority the Roman Catholic Church and denying the authority of the papacy and the magisterium, he had left the keys unused and unusable. It's quite an argument. What Luther was told... And it sounded very persuasive by the Catholic theology of the 16th century with the development of the papacy and all that had been involved. It made perfect sense that if the Pope doesn't exercise the keys, no one will exercise the keys. This will lead to mayhem. It will lead to doctrinal confusion. It will lead, and and this is the worst part of the papal claims, it will lead to the inability of the Pope to open heaven or to release souls from purgatory. So Luther had to think fast, kind of like Peter. Luther had to think fast, and he had to figure out in a hurry, if the Pope isn't holding the keys, then who is? If if the Pope doesn't have the keys, and and there can be no church without the keys, there can be no church. There, there, There can be no church without the exercise of the keys. There can be no church without binding and loosing. There can be no church without theological and doctrinal integrity and authority. There can be no church without authoritative teaching. There can be no church without discipline. Without the keys, there's no church. So Luther had to answer in a hurry. Who's got the keys? You look at almost every Roman Catholic cathedral, and you look at a central window, and you will see Peter pictured, and in Peter's hand are the keys. You look at the historic statues of Peter in the history of Catholicism, and and you see Peter, and he's often sitting, he's sometimes standing, but in every single case, in his hand are the keys. If Peter has the keys, we're doomed. If Francis has the keys, it's horrifying. <laughs> but Luther came to understand, here's who has the keys. The church has the keys. How are the keys operational? The keys are operational in congregations of believers. And, and, and who has the responsibility, first and foremost, for the keys? The one who preaches and teaches the Word of God. The one who preaches and teaches the word of God by the act of preaching and teaching is binding and loosing. You understand that rabbinical language in terms of determining how the scripture is binding upon us and how the scriptures loose us. It was, it was often found in the rabbinical exercise of scriptural reasoning in specific questions of pastoral pressure. But the reality is it was the entirety of the ministry determining how the law binds, how the scripture binds and how it looses And the Reformers are absolutely right. Without the keys, there is no church. But where are the keys found? Wherever Christ's church is found, the keys are found. And, and and wherever a biblical congregation is found, the keys are found. And if that congregation is indeed a Christian biblical congregation, the keys are not only found, they are exercised. They're exercised in determining true doctrine and true teaching. They're exercised in, in determining true morality and the discipline of the church. They are exercised in the church being the church. And notice exactly what he says here. And, and of course, here again, we've got a passage that makes us think. We don't like passages that make us think. We like to avoid passages that make us think. The verb tense in this is a struggle. Is Jesus saying that whatever you as the church bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven? Whatever you loose on earth, I'll loose in heaven? You can't actually make a conclusive argument from the grammar. But thankfully, we don't have to. The grammar is instructive. The syntax is instructive. The most important thing is biblical theology helps us to understand that the the right way to interpret this, given the sovereignty of God, given the authority of Christ, given the other promises, and, and the way these same truths are revealed elsewhere in Scripture is whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven Why? Because it's the Word of God that does the binding, and the Word of God came from heaven, and and it's given to us. It's the great gift of a verbal, written revelation. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is where the church finds its conviction and its courage. The conviction is in the very center of the text in the Petrine Confession. Here's the conviction. We know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and encompassed within that is the totality of all of the promises given to us in the Messiah, and more than that, all of the promises given to us in what it means for the Messiah to be the very Son of God and for God to so love the world. He gave his only Son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus is the Messiah, but only the Messiah, you and I are blessed but lost. If he is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, the Christ, God's own Son, then because of his sinless life and because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection from the dead, then we are Saved. The courage of the church is found in this text. It's not not a courage in ourselves, far be it from that. I look at you, I don't take much courage. You look to me, you shouldn't take much courage. Reminds me of a professor that was in a faculty interview, wonderful, godly, orthodox professor, one of the great pillars of the faith. He was asked a question about a matter of biblical interpretation. No key doctrine, but a matter of biblical interpretation. One of the trustees said, is that really your position? Not accusatory, just interesting. And the professor said, I think so, but I don't know how long I'd hold it under persecution. (laughs) Well, that's honest. That's honest. That better not be the answer about anything clearly declared in Scripture. But there's some questions we can have. There's some texts we're going to talk about. Is this, this had to do with Romans chapter 7. You know, who, who, who is Paul at this point? Well, I don't know that I'm going to hold that long under persecution. Because I don't know what would make me fold. Don't trust me. I don't know what would make you fold. I don't trust you. What I do trust is that the gates of hell shall not prevail. I I believe that Christ secures his church even as he saves his church, and, and he will keep his church, and he will secure his church, and he will preserve his church, and he will resurrect his church, and he will glorify his church, having justified his church. Of that, I'm absolutely certain. There are many threats to the church. There are internal threats and there are external threats. The the internal threats include the threats of false doctrine and of false Christians, just unbelievers who infiltrate the church, And, and, and a false doctrine and a false teachers. Is more about false teachers than any other warning in Scripture about threats to the church. The internal warnings far outweigh the external warnings, and the internal warnings of the greatest persistence and frequency are about false teachers. There are false practices a false morality. There there are false gospels, as Paul says. Look how how quickly you turn to another gospel. There's false worship. I wish I had time to think about all of these, but you know them already. And those are just the internal threats to the church, and they would be quite sufficient to sink the church if the church is about us. And the security of the church is found in us. And then there are external threats. In the, in, in, in the time of, of Jesus, remember, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Rome is the great threat. There are, there, are, there are all kinds of political threats. The church has enemies because Christ had enemies. We're living in a time in which the main threat we face in the post-Christian West is not overt oppression in the sense that Christians have experienced unto death in places such as Rome or Albania or North Korea or China, but rather in the post-Christian West, it is the seductive temptation and threat of a secularizing culture. That, by the way, will be quite happy with us If we try to hold on to a Jesus who isn't the Christ, the Son of the living God, but will hate us if we confess Christ, the Son of the living God. There are external threats, political threats to religious liberty. There are seductions. There's worldliness inside the church and all kinds of pressures of marginalization outside the church. And the greatest enemy of of all, the Scripture makes clear, the greatest external enemy is Satan. And if you don't believe in Satan then you don't believe the New Testament. Peter tells us that he is wandering to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And none of us is his match, but Jesus is. And you know it. So, here we are, gathered together as preachers, looking at a text like this. We understand that this is the very Magna Carta of the church. Thanks be to God. Here's the church. Here's where the church shows up. The church shows up when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And the church shows up when Peter is the first to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus declares his church. He establishes his church. He makes clear that he has established the church on a rock that is impregnable, which is himself and the confession of his faith. We see Peter honored and blessed to be the first to articulate those words, but he is the first of all who would follow. Oh? and Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I am giving to you all of you the keys exercise them according to scripture so what do we do with all of this in your hymnal hymn 53 and by the way this is a hymnal it's what it looks like it's a, it's a book and in it are hymns this is a particularly wonderful hymnal, the Hymns of Grace. Number 53, I just want direct, to direct your attention and understand exactly what Luther was confessing in the third verse of A Mighty Fortress. With time escaping us, just look at this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word is a name. The name is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and thus the devil is felled, and we are
0: saved. Thanks be to God. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, of fighting for the faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Pyro Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pyro Christian. Till next Tuesday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.